This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Well, hi everyone. If we haven't met yet, I hope that uh, we get to over the next few days. It's great to be back uh, uh, among you, and I, I, um, I really mean that. It is good to be here. And um, uh, when I asked me to talk about the resurrection, I was a bit uh, thrown, I guess, really, because the resurrection is always something I'd struggled with a bit to do uh, Easter sermons on, because... Uh, strangely enough, I always thought there wasn't a lot to say about it. But um, <laughs> as I've dug into the resurrection, I've found that uh, there's so much you could say is not funny. And like any good preacher, I have a tendency to say too much rather than too little. So um, there's going to be a lot of content, particularly in tonight's talk and uh, tomorrow's. But uh, I know you're keen and sharp and uh, full of energy at 8 o'clock at night. So uh, it'll be no problem as long as we all stay switched on. So how about I pray, ask God to help us, and uh, we'll launch in. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be here together. Um, as Wise already prayed, we thank you that we can think uh, more about the resurrection. Uh, and we pray that uh, you'll not just fill our heads with knowledge, but uh, use that knowledge to transform us, to be more like Jesus in the way we live our lives in anticipation of our resurrection. And we pray... In Jesus' great name, Amen. Well, I don't want to kick off on a sad note, but I want to tell you the tale of two funerals. First funeral was for a guy I used to work for, Ken. Ken had only just retired, and it was very sad that he died so soon in his retirement. At his funeral, his lifelong friend, John, gave a lovely eulogy in which he spoke with uh, warmth and deep appreciation of the man that Ken had been and the friendship that they had enjoyed over the years. And uh, as he came to the conclusion of his talk, he, he looked at the coffin as if to address Ken one last time and with a tremor in his voice that somehow emphasised the conviction with which he was speaking, John said, I will see you again, my friend because we believe in a God who raises the dead. The second funeral was for the son of a friend of ours. Their three-year-old son, Rory, drowned in their backyard swimming pool. The funeral was conducted by a senior member of one of the churches in Perth. And when it came time for his address, I will never forget his conclusion or the climactic point that he made in finishing with a lie when he said, addressing the family of the boy who died, he said, we have nothing more to give you but the love that's in this room. Don't underestimate how great that love is. We have nothing more to give you than the love that's in this room. seems to me that the resurrection is the difference as to whether we live life with hope or without it. And the hope the resurrection gives is not just life beyond the grave, but the life beyond the grave that is lived in a world that is all that God intended to be in a kingdom that will be everlasting, never-ending, eternal. 
But you can't have an eternal kingdom without an eternal king. And this points us to the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. Because the resurrection of Jesus is the coming of God's eternal king. The resurrection of Jesus is the coming of God's eternal king. Now the coming of this king is anticipated in the Old Testament, in particular in the book of Daniel. And so I had planned to begin our session tonight in the book of Daniel, and you'll see that's reflected in your outlines, I think. But for the sake of time, it's going to be better if we just jump straight into Matthew chapter 24. And what we have in Matthew 24 and 25 is the last big teaching block of Jesus before his death and resurrection. And Jesus uses this last speech of his to help his followers understand what his death and resurrection is all about. And the way he does that is by outlining a timetable or a sequence of events that climax with the coming of God's eternal king. But before we uh, dive in, can I just say that we're going to cover a lot of Bible territory in these last chapters of Matthew tonight. And some of you might stress about getting lost, uh, especially if you're taking notes or you know the app you're using is a bit slow or your thumbs are not very nimble. But can I say don't stress? Um, I'll read out most of the verses and just take them in that way maybe. And I'll also email to Y the text of what I'm saying tonight so that if any of you are interested in checking up or chasing up the references, just contact Y and he'll give you the, the text of my talk and it's all there. So let's look then at this uh, sequence of events that climaxes with the coming of God's King. And as we turn to Matthew chapter 24, in verse 3, we hear the disciples asking Jesus, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now this wasn't a rare moment of insight from the disciples when they were asking about Jesus' death. In fact, they weren't asking about Jesus' death at all in a way, because surely if they were, they would have asked him for the sign of your going, not the sign of your coming. And they didn't ask about his end, his death. If you check the verse, they asked about the end of the age. Now, if we had been able to dive back into Daniel and have a look at that, uh, we would have gone to Daniel chapter 7 in particular. And if we had done that, we'd realise that what the disciples are asking Jesus is a question relating to when the stuff that Daniel had spoken about would be fulfilled. Because what we get in Daniel chapter 7 uh, is this, in verse 13. 
that God through Daniel says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven comes one like a son of man. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. And so you see the disciples were asking Jesus when they say what will be the sign of your coming, they're talking about the coming of the Son of Man as as Daniel prophesied. And because the coming of the Son of Man will result in this kingdom that is never-ending and everlasting, it will actually mean the end of this age and the beginning of that new age. And so this is what they're asking when they said to Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They're asking after the coming of God's eternal king and God's eternal kingdom. Now, in the answer that Jesus gives, which actually takes the rest of chapter 24 and 25, he actually gives a lot of detail, and some of it can be hard for us to understand, and for the sake of time, we're not going to look at it all. But I want us to focus on what he says about the sequence of events that ends with the coming of God's eternal King. Now, in the first part of Jesus' answer, it seems to me that he says, guys, you're asking for a sign... But I'm saying to you, don't worry so much about signs as survival. But then he goes on to tell them what the end of the age, that the end of the age will come. Have a look at verse 13 and 14. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. You see, don't worry about signs, you just worry about surviving. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And in what follows, Jesus then maps out a sequence of events that conclude with verse 14 happening, concludes with the gospel being proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to the nations. And so let me walk you through that sequence. If you jump down to verse uh, 15, 15 to 30 gives us a number of time references or sequence markers. And so in verse uh, 15, when you see, you see that's a time reference, when you see it, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Down then to verse 21. For then, at that time, another time reference, for then there will be a great tribulation or distress, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Daniel, actually, if we'd looked at it, talked about the coming of the world's greatest ever distress associated with this king. But anyway, back to our time sequence, timetable, down to verse 29 this time. Another time word, immediately. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
then, at that time, will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And then, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And when he comes, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four uh, winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. And we know from what Jesus said uh, in verse 14 that when the proclamation of the kingdom takes place to the nations, then comes the end. So in these verses, Jesus is outlining this sequence of events, the appearance of an abomination of desolation, the greatest distress that the world has ever known or will know, signs such as the sun being darkened, at that time in heaven, the sign of the Son of Man. At that time, the tribes will mourn. The Son of Man will then come with power and glory. The Son of Man being the eternal King, remember. His angels will then go and gather the elect. And then the end will come. Now, I'm calling this a sequence of events, but maybe at points it's more of a, a cluster of events because many of the events are, are linked by the connection which is literally at that time. So it could mean that um, it's not so much, you know, one event starts when the previous one's finished, but to an extent they're happening at the same time a bit. There's a bit of overlap between them. Any case, Jesus then goes on to tell us a couple more very important things about this sequence of events. Firstly, he says that it's going to happen before the people he is talking to die. Have a look at verses 33 and 34. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he, the Son of Man, is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. He's saying these things are going to happen before the people he was talking to were dead. The second very important thing that he does in the rest of chapter 24 and into chapter 25 is that he highlights the importance and the urgency of the disciples' situation by stressing that because no one knew exactly when this sequence of events would happen, the disciples needed to be on the watch for them, on the lookout for them. And so he says in verse 36, Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, even the angels of, the he of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now many people understand that as talking about the day of, you know, the second coming. But I'm saying to you that in context, this is actually talking about the day of the coming of God's eternal King in the resurrection of Jesus. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. 
down in verse 39, it's going to come when people don't expect it. As in the days of Noah, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. To verse 42. Therefore, stay awake. Now, the word that's translated stay awake is literally the word watch. Therefore, stay awake, watch, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Verse 43. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have watched and wouldn't have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And notice there how Jesus has focused our attention not just on the coming of the end, but the unknown hour when the end will come. He's brought it down to a very specific sort of focus. And again, lots of people understand this as talking about the second coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus, and of course that that will happen. But remember that Jesus has said to these guys, you know, 2,000 years ago, the stuff that I'm talking about here is going to take place before you're dead. So he wasn't talking about the second coming. He's talking about something else. Then as he moves into chapter 25, he begins with a, a parable in which people who miss the arrival of the bridegroom also miss the celebrations because they were not ready. And he concludes the parable in verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So, so, so to recap what we've seen in this section so far, when his disciples asked him for a sign of his coming and the end of the age, Jesus told them not to watch for a sign but a sequence. And not so much a sequence but an hour. And though they didn't know when that hour would come, it would be before they were dead, and it would be when they saw these things happening. I guess, uh, as you know, it's one thing to be aware of a sequence of timetabled events, but another to match events to the sequence. Um, a number of years ago now, my family was meant to go to my sister's place for Christmas. She lived about two and a half hours away from us. And for some reason, my wife went with the kids in the car and uh, I came later on a train. And to catch the train to my sister's place, you had to change stations at this place called Kayama Station. And of course, after an hour on the train when I pulled into Kayama, I had an urgent need to go to the toilet. And the urgency of my situation affected my ability to carefully watch the sequence of events that was spelt out on the train timetable. And I thought there was ten minutes to the next train when in fact there was one. So while I was in the bathroom, the train came and went, and I missed it, and the planned sequence of events thereafter didn't happen. But what Matthew's Gospel is very keen to show is that God so controlled the events that they did in fact follow the sequence that Jesus had made known. And so what we want to do now 
is have a look at the events that follow in the rest of Matthew and see that this sequence is fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But let me just say, before any particular event, the first sign that the beginning of this sequence was upon them back at that time were the indications in Matthew's Gospel that the hour had come. You know, Jesus had warned the disciples that because they didn't know when the hour would come, they must watch. But things didn't look too good for the disciples' ability to watch when he took them with him into the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 26. Because there he found that while he prayed, they slept. And when Jesus rebukes them in chapter 26, verse 40, we're told that he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Could you not watch with me for one hour? And I don't think he means there, could you not you know, sit up and keep your eyes open for 60 minutes? I think he meant, could you not be on the lookout for the hour that I've told you to expect sometime soon? And then having asked uh, God the Father if there was an alternative to the cross, but realising that there was not, Jesus says uh, over in the middle of verse 45, came to the disciples and said to to them, sleep and take your rest uh, later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of the sinners. And then betrayed by a kiss from his friend Judas, Jesus said that he could have avoided what was about to happen, but that if he did, the will of God written in Scripture would not be fulfilled. And like the minute he says that, in verse 55, we're literally told, and this is what the text literally says in the original, at that the hour, Jesus said to the crowds, And his betrayal is complete and he's handed over. With the hour comes the beginning of this sequence of events. But I want to jump over event one and the abomination for a moment and think first about the tribulation or distress that was to be greater than anything the world had ever seen or would see. And I ask you, could there be any greater distress than when God's own Son subjected himself to people, to his own people, who had refused to believe him, took upon himself the sin of humanity and in so doing personally suffered the wrath of God. Could there be anything more distressing in the history of the world 
than that. Because dying for sin is what Jesus had told his disciples his death would be all about. At the Last Supper, just before his betrayal, Jesus had said to his disciples that his blood would be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. But his sins would be to be forgiven, just as demanded that someone bear God's wrath that sin deserves. Jesus knew it was to be him, and that knowledge caused him such distress that in the garden he prayed to God, not once, not twice, but three times, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. How distressed must Jesus have been? To ask God if there was another way. Not once, but three times. And can you hear his distress as the events continue to unfold and we get to chapter 27 and and in verses 45 and 46 we're told that the hour stretches into the sixth hour and then the ninth hour. And then Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the Jesus who all through his ministry had been saying to people, God the Father and I are like that. We are one. And here he is, forsaken by God. How distressing must that have been? Now these days... When people are, are in distress, they shoot up a flare into the sky. But we once spoke of distress beacons to show where people are in distress. And I think in, in, in this section of Scripture, uh, Matthew lights up three distress beacons to help us see that Jesus was in the midst of the world's greatest ever distress. You see, having warned that the time of the distress would come, we read when Jesus was in the garden in chapter 6, in verse 37, taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. You see, his distress began, Matthew tells us. Having said that when the distress comes, those in Judea should flee, 26 verse 56 tells us all this had taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled, that is the events of Jesus' betrayal. Then all the disciples left him and fled. And the third distress beacon, I think, is Peter. Even though he was of such courage that he had previously said he'd rather die than deny Jesus. Even though according to uh, chapter 6 verse 58, he, he followed Jesus when everyone else fled. And he was following at a, at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside with the guards to see the end. interesting, isn't it? But even though he had the courage to follow that Jesus that far, this same Peter finds himself in a moment of such distress in verse 75 
that we're told at the end of that verse that he went out and wept bitterly. Because he who said he would rather die than deny Jesus had in fact denied him not once, but three times. And what was causing this distress? It was that Jesus was in the beginnings, the middle of of the betrayal, the arrest, the trial, the sufferings and the death that would see him bear the wrath of God so that we might know the forgiveness of our sins. Is there anything else in all of history before then or since then that could be said to be a time of distress greater than that? greater than when God's own and only Son died to take God's wrath for humanity's sin. Well, according to our sequence of events, this distress was to be triggered by the appearance of the abomination of desolation in the holy place. And this is something that Daniel had uh, given them a tip about as well. And again, I want to ask you, what could be more abominable to God than for the religious leadership of his people, the religious leaders of Israel, with the temple, the holy place, as the platform for power on which they stood, if you like, What could be more of an abomination to God than that religious leadership insisting on and rejoicing in the death of God's Son? The abomination of their betrayal and lies led to the distress of the crucifixion of Jesus. Next on the sequence... We're told that uh, immediately after this, the sun will be darkened, the moon won't give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And we do see some of these things and others like them over in chapter 27, in verse 45, when we're told that from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. Sixth hour, by their reckoning, was midday. This is 12 till 3 in the afternoon, darkness over the land. Surely that's the sun being darkened. And according to verse 51, as Jesus died, behold... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. Not exactly the same signs that were mentioned in our sequence, but if we see them all as the same kind of imagery, then I think you can see that one fulfills the other, even if there's not an identical wording. If we go again to the predicted sequence of events, 
we're told that at that time will appear the sign of the Son of Man. Now what is this, the sign of the Son of Man? Back in chapter 20, when Jesus was on the road with the disciples, there'd been some discussion among the disciples about greatness. And Jesus had said to them in uh, chapter 20, that the sign of greatness in God's kingdom is service and sacrifice for the sake of others. And that there is none greater than the Son of Man who would give his life as a ransom for others. The sign of the Son of Man is his untoppable service in giving his life as a ransom for others. And so as Jesus hung suspended on the cross, in the heavens, in that you know weak sort of a sense, I suppose, giving his life for the forgiveness of others, Surely this is the sign of the Son of Man, demonstrating not just his greatness, but he is the greatest in the kingdom. Again, back to the sequence that Jesus has outlined, uh, and we're up to step five, I think that is, where Jesus had said that all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Now, I can see that in the events of Jesus' death and resurrection recorded here in Matthew, there's no direct reference for that. Uh, trust me, I look pretty hard to find one. But there's no direct reference there. However, what I did discover is that Galilee was originally part of the land given in the Old Testament to the 12 tribes of Israel. And in chapter 27... Uh, verse 55, we're told that as Jesus had just died on the cross, there are also many women there looking on for a dis- from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee. Could it be that these Galilean women, these same women who were there, I expect mournfully watching the death of their great friend Jesus on the cross. These same women who were sufficiently interested in dealing with Jesus' death properly, that they watched Jesus, uh, uh, Joseph lie the body of Jesus in the tomb. Again, I'd suggest a, a mournful occasion for them. These same women who straight after the Sabbath were again at the tomb on Sunday morning. These are women, I want to suggest to you, who are deeply grieving the loss of Jesus. And they're in that moment where they they can't let him go. They still want to be near him in that sense. To see that his body is properly treated. Could it be that these mourning women from Galilee, which was once the land of the twelve tribes, are the fulfilment of the mourning tribes? 
from the same region. Well, be that as it may, the next events in the sequence that Jesus foretold is that they will see the Son of Man coming with glory. Now, Jesus' words here, or, or sorry, the Gospel's words here are clearly an echo of Daniel chapter 7 and that promise of the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven to be given dominion and glory in the eternal kingdom. And the interesting thing here is that you know, earlier in, in Matthew's Gospel in uh, chapter 16 in verse 28, Jesus had also said there that the disciples would see this before they died this coming of the Son of Man in fulfilment of Daniel's prophecy about the coming of God's eternal king. They'd see it before they died, he'd said in 1628. In our section, in chapter 24, in verse 44, he had said that the hour that they were to watch for, the hour that had now come, was the hour of the coming of the Son of Man. In 2664, at his trial, Jesus had said to the high priest, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Clearly the language of Daniel. But from now on, Jesus said to the high priest. So what are we to conclude when after his resurrection from the dead, in chapter 28, down at verse 18, the risen Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I have no doubt that we ought to conclude that the resurrection of Jesus is when the Son of Man comes, is given the power and authority of God's king in God's kingdom. The resurrection of Jesus is the coming of God's eternal king. In fact, I think we can say more than that. We can say that the resurrection of Jesus is the enthroning of God's eternal king. Because there's all these references on the way up to it. So from now on you're going to see it. It's going to happen before you die. And suddenly the risen Jesus pops up and says, now I've got all that power and authority. The coming's happened. It happened in his resurrection. And so the last event in the sequence is when the glorious Son of Man sends out his angels to gather the elect from everywhere. And again, the Greek word that's been translated angels literally just means those sent to tell a message. And we find the glorious Son of Man, the risen Jesus, doing just this in chapter 28, verse 19, saying to his disciples, 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That is, how were they going to do it? They were going to proclaim the kingdom, the gospel, and initiate people into the Christian faith that way. If we'd looked at Daniel's expectations in detail, we'd know that when the king came to be given God's eternal kingdom, the king would then share his kingdom with the saints who join him in a resurrection life. So you get this verse in Daniel chapter 7, 18. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. If that's going to happen, they have to be raised to an eternal life, which is something Daniel mentioned in chapter 12. But they're receiving from this Son of Man, this King of God's eternal kingdom. They're receiving the possession of the kingdom too. He's sharing it with them. And is this not why Jesus sends out the disciples to make disciples from all nations? So that they can join him as members of the people of God who... We know in God's kingdom we'll share the rule with him. So by now I'm sure you're feeling that we've covered a lot of territory and I repeat my offer to make my text available to you to, if you want to think about it some more. Um, and we've looked at the sequence of events associated with the king's coming and we've seen this sequence of events is fulfilled in the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. And what I hope you can agree with me on is that we've actually come ultimately to the point not just to seeing that the resurrection of Jesus is the coming of God's eternal king, but it is the enthroning of God's eternal king. And I think it's a measure of God's grace that Matthew's gospel finishes not only with the enthronement of God's eternal king, but an invitation. An invitation to see who Jesus really is. Because if you look carefully at Matthew chapter 28, you'll notice that it's full of seeing words. All the words I've highlighted have to do with seeing. Behold is calling someone to see what you see. Remember how Jesus had repeatedly told the disciples that they need to watch for the hour of the coming of the Son of Man? And how in the Garden of Gethsemane he had rebuked them because they were unable to watch for that hour? And here at the very end of the Gospel, the disciples who had been unable to watch are now told what to see. Verses 6 and 7. He is not here, he has risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. How many seeing words are in those couple of sentences? The disciples who had been unable to watch are now told what to see. 
And the point that Matthew makes is that all the disciples, both the men and the women, when they saw the risen Jesus for who he really is, they worshipped him. Verse 17, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, though some doubted. So I guess we really need to see that Matthew finishes his gospel not just with an invitation to see, but an invitation to see and worship. Because ultimately Jesus is, is not just a guy whose blood was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus is the Son of Man to whom God has given all power and authority to be his eternal king. And who would have thought it? But he wants to share the glory and even the rule of the kingdom with you. And so in the end, the offer is, do you see who Jesus really is? And if you see, will you worship him? Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.